0: Um, yeah, this is the second of a two-part series on um, on church giving. Um, part one, yeah, there were some technical difficulties with the recording, unfortunately. So if you missed it last week, um, then um, just pretend it was just think that it was the greatest talk you've never heard on church giving. Um, if you were here last week, um, don't talk to the ones who weren't here last week. Um, so um, we. Uh, Going to look at this, um, but I thought as we didn't have part one recorded, I thought I'd start with a 60 second summary of what you missed in part one. So 60 seconds on the clock. Um, Let's go. So last week I talked about how I'd written a dissertation called What Should Be the Taught Approach to Congregational Giving at an Inner City South London Church, which looked at approaches to congregational giving. We started by looking at tithing and why this was, as one theologian put it, biblical but not Christian. We talked about the problems of encouraging everyone to give a flat rate of 10%, not taking into account their individual circumstances, and how it might be more difficult for someone on job seekers allowance to give 10% of their £53 a week than somebody earning millions. We looked at two corinthians 8 and 9 one of the longest passages about giving in the bible and we talked about how paul who was the writer of this letter didn't advocate tithing we pulled out a couple of principles from these chapters that could help us come up with a better approach the idea of giving generously and that of giving that there might be equality Um, i gave some ideas about how this might work and i told you that what we were going to do then was lay the foundation at the end for week two and that in week two we would look at two overarching principles and how we could turn this into practice Um, The first of these two principles, then, when we get into it, um, is the idea of jubilee. It's really weird walking around holding a microphone. I always wear that little Britney headset thing, and I think it may be a Welsh thing, but... To walk and not be able to talk with your hands is really odd, isn't it? Um, So the first of these is Jubilee. Uh, Jill read a section of Leviticus 25 to us, um, which is the first time in the Bible that this idea, the concept of Jubilee, is mentioned. We haven't got time to go into this in detail this morning, but Jubilee is an economic model that would be considered hugely radical in today's society. It says that every 50 years, each community member is released from all debt. And that all land is returned to its original owner and all slaves are freed. Um, in the interest of giving us any time for our church forum, I will limit what I say about this to just one uh, interesting thing. One of the interesting things is that it didn't only impact communities every 50 years. When you read this at face value, you think, oh, it's great that you know at this 50-year point that slaves get freed and debts get written off. But what actually happened in practice was that it impacted the way that people lived during that 50 years as well. Because... Communities weren't just changed when they got their land back. What's the point in holding your wealth, in spending your days clinging onto something, clutching onto something, trying to accumulate stuff and not sharing your wealth, if in a few decades you're going to give it back anyway? Jubilee gave people a different mindset. It was a mindset which says, what I have isn't mine to hold forever what I have is to be held lightly with an open hand accessible to the others who share this life with me. Now, I'm not going to stand here. You'll be glad to know uh, on a Sunday morning and argue that we should do the same. I think even the most radical of us would uh, probably agree that this is not a practical solution to what we should give in an inner city South London church. And it certainly wouldn't have got me uh, an MA in my dissertation, I would imagine. But um, I think that um, I, read, I talked about this book last week, uh, Beyond Tithing, by Stuart Murray, and in it he says that even though uh, Jubilee couldn't be replicated now, there were certain values, certain hopes, and certain ideals which we should stick with. I read about another theologian, a guy called Paul Spray, and he says there are two principles that underlie Jubilee that we could use today. He says it's a regular moment that counteracts injustices thrown up by the existing system. And it does so by referring to fundamental values. I think that most people would agree that the existing system is throwing up some injustices. Um, We live in a world where the richest eight people have as much wealth as the poorest half of the world. Seven out of ten people live in a country that has seen a rise in inequality in the last 30 years. Between 1988 and 2011, the incomes of the poorest 10% increased by just $65 per person, while the incomes of the richest 1% grew by almost $12,000 per person, 182 times as much as the poorest 10%. Oh, and those eight people who own half of the wealth in the world? None of them are female. Paul Spray says that we need to regularly evaluate our economic systems to ensure that they're working towards our fundamental principles. And he says that one of the most important of these is equality of opportunity. He says that we can't expect to bring back jubilee, but we can look for jubilee actions to redress inequalities every day, every week, in all that we do in 21st century London. Probably the best known example of Jubilee is this. It's a campaigning group called Jubilee 2000, which I'm sure that a load of you will remember and some of you were probably involved with. Um, It's a really interesting story. It started in 1990 with this guy. He was an academic, uh, a guy called Martin Dent. He was a politics lecturer at Keele University, and he was really interested in debt relief for the poorest countries in the world. So he started a petition to cancel the debt of the world's poorest countries. A politics lecturer. From Keele University. He was a Christian. He called it Jubilee 2000 because of that section in Leviticus. So um, he spoke to some of his friends. He spoke to a guy who was an economist. Uh, They got together, and they decided that they would write to their local MP, and then they would write to other MPs. He said that the the debt that countries in the developing world owed to the World Bank, to the IMF, um, to bigger countries and private investors, was one of the biggest causes of poverty in the developing world. Um, So he wrote these MPs. um, He uh, started a campaign. He started a petition at his university, and he tried to push this a bit further uh, around. And unbelievably, the idea started to grow a bit of legs. The idea took off. More and more people got on board with it. Gordon Brown was the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, and he gave uh, quite an important, uh, well-known speech where he announced that Britain's government was going to support it. Other governments got on board with it. And to cut a, a very long story short, $100 billion of debt by 35 of the poorest countries in the world, was cancelled. A guy called Andrew Sims was involved. Um, He said this. He said, This debt was keeping all these nations in debtor's prison. Today, you can hear the sounds of the chains of debt dropping. Today, you can hear the sounds of the chains of debt dropping. $100 billion of debt owed by 35 of the poorest countries in the world, cancelled. A petition that was started by a politics lecturer from Keeley University was eventually signed by 21 million people around the world, and all because of a few verses in Leviticus. It's incredible, isn't it? What a difference, what a practical difference to millions of people's lives. Now, even though this is a a concept that's found mainly in the Old Testament, the ideas that underpin Jubilee can be found in the New Testament as well. Um, The story of Zacchaeus uh, from Luke chapter 19, many of you will know the story. Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector um, who the community hated because his entire job was to take money from the local community and give it to the hated Roman rulers. But after Jesus spoke to him, he changed his life. Here is chapter 19 verse 8. After Jesus had Picked Zacchaeus out of the crowd. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Um, this verse is important because it isn't just a story about Zacchaeus giving away some money, it's a story of redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. And it's a story of reparation paying back those who deserved it. Um, Another author, Matthew Colwell, says it's a form of giving portrayed not as generosity but as justice. A form of giving portrayed not just as generosity but as justice. Jubilee 2000 was a fantastic example of that. Last week, when we looked at a passage from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I said that one of the key principles we could take from that was the idea of giving generously. But this is another step up. This isn't giving out of obligation. This isn't giving just out of generosity. It's giving as justice. Um, Stuart Murray, who wrote that book, said that the gospel was meant to be good news for the poor, but tithing was good news for the rich. Well, Jubilee was definitely good news for the poor. Jubilee 2000 was good news for the poor. And Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus was good news for the poor. A guy called Donald Crabel says that Jesus calls us beyond rules and regulations by calling for a perpetual jubilee. We're not just looking at redistributing wealth every 50 years. We're living out a perpetual jubilee. Constantly looking to see how we live our lives and how we redistribute our wealth to ensure that no one goes without The second of these principles, quickly, is um, before we move on to the the practical, is called koinonia. It's a Greek word that we find in the New Testament. Um, And it means fellowship with someone or participation in something. It's also been used to mean joint owner. And that usage comes from the old practice of when a farmer couldn't afford to buy a cow in a community, people would put their money together to buy a cow between them and look after this cow together. It demands commitment. The same word is used when Paul talks about communion. Here is 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 16. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give a participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. He's saying here that koinonia, fellowship with Christ, involves koinonia with members of the body of Christ. Paul writes this section of this letter because he's infuriated by the church in Corinth because they were failing to share the Lord's Supper together. It had become a show of wealth. The rich people would eat in one room, better food, good wine, and the poor people would eat. The lower status people would eat in a separate room. For Paul, koinonia meant sharing the whole of life together. And he uses the same word when he's discussing financial sharing um we took these two verses and we looked at them last week um but there's uh, both of them in 2 Corinthians 8 and in 9 use this word koinonia um and it's also used in uh, Acts 2. This is one of those strange passages, I think, from the Bible, in that loads of us will recognize it, but not all that many of us who follow it to the letter. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, koinonia, again, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common, koina, that's the root of it. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, you'll be glad to know that when I get onto to the practical section of this talk, um, I'm not sure that the Bible says that every one of us has to go out and do that sell all of our possessions and give everything that we have to those in need i do think that's a valid biblical approach to giving actually there's a, a community called the bruderhof community who are based in 23 settlements around the world and they have two and a half thousand people who live there and they say they practice radical discipleship in the spirit of this church where they renounce private property and share everything in common i do think that is a biblical approach but i don't think it's the only biblical approach um Uh, I think that because this same word, Koinonia, is used here, but also in 2 Corinthians, and it's used in totally different ways. In Corinthians, Paul says, give generously. He uses this word to implore the Corinthians to give that there might be equality, but he doesn't ask them to sell all their property and possessions. Um, There's one more theologian, Ron Sider, he talks about giving, that there might be equality as well. But he also pulls two other guidelines out of this word, the way that Paul uses this word koinonia. Firstly, I'm sorry about this one. He says, give all you can. His words, not mine, unfortunately. Um, He says that Paul's approach has no hint of a mechanical 10%. No hint of a mechanical 10% that everybody has to give. A caveat here, he says, give all you can, not all you have. You still should pay your rent. And secondly, he says that Paul's approach is totally voluntary. There's no sense in which this approach forces someone to give. And I'd like to think that you know that that's the case here in this church as well. There's no obligation to give here. There's no sense that you can't become part of the club uh, unless you give your 10%. We want to encourage generous giving, giving out of a love and a desire to see things changed. And as I said last week, the last thing that I want to do when I give a talk like this is to leave anybody feeling condemned by any of these words. I think many churches have done a great job of doing that, unfortunately, over the years. And the last thing we want to be is to be one of those. I don't know anyone's individual circumstances here. There's absolutely no judgment at all. So... As we finish and we move on to um, the church forum where we're going to talk a bit more practically about this, Um, what do we do about all this? As part of my dissertation, I interviewed Steve and he talked about how since he's been a minister, not just here, but previously, he's always tried to encourage a principle of generosity. How do we live our lives in a spirit of generosity? Because I think part of the problem, as I touched on last week is that the idea of a principle of generosity and of giving that there might be equality and giving us justice all of these are great concepts aren't they but they don't lead us to tangible easy to understand outcomes tithing is simple tithing says you give your 10 percent to the church you you take what you earn in any given week or month you divide it by 10 and that's the amount you set your standing up order up for it's simple But if we're looking at taking the Bible in a bit more depth and we're looking to apply the principles that we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and in Jubilee and in Koinonia, we have to do a bit more work than this. The ideas of generous giving and economic fairness and equality, they're great concepts which should underpin our approach to giving. But what does that look like in practice? I got to thinking about the way in which we approach church here. And one of the things that I thought is that we talk about things, we discuss things, we debate things. Often the person who's standing up here will say something like, don't take this as face value. Go away, research it, read about it, talk to your friends about it, see what you think about all of this stuff. We use the example of the rabbis in the Bible who, who all had their own interpretations of the Torah. They had their own yoke. You went to a rabbi, you discussed and you debated things with them. You would sit with them, learn from them. So what does that mean for how we give? How does this idea of working out our faith through discussion and conversation, how do we apply this to this idea of giving? Um, when I was writing this dissertation I took a day's annual leave uh, and went up to the London School of Theology library and I spent the day uh, writing there I mean As you can imagine, it was a thrilling way to spend a day's holiday. Um, But at the end of this day, I was going to Emily, who's a friend of ours, for for an evening meal. And I met Louise there, and and she asked how my day had been. And we got chatting about this. When I was writing this dissertation, I was always far happier talking about what I was going to write than I actually was about writing it. But we had a a long conversation about these principles behind giving. Um, And at the end of the evening, I, I remember walking away thinking... That's the most detailed conversation I think I've ever had with anybody outside of my family about giving and my approach to it. Because I said last week, isn't the done thing, is it? We don't often talk about this. We talk about theological concepts. We will you know, have loads of conversations about a lot of what we talk about up the front. But we don't often, from the front or in community, talk about what we give, and why we give. Um, So that conversation actually helped with the dissertation because it got me thinking about how we could structure some of this stuff to start our conversations. And I remembered uh, an old book that I had read, a a Brian McLaren book, many years ago. And and in that, he says that every year, he goes away with a, a group of really close friends. And they have what they call the five queries, five questions. Um, that look in depth at how they're doing and how they're getting on. And they all sit around, and every year they answer these five questions. Um, I thought this was a good idea. I thought if one of the key components about how we build up a theology of giving that works for us in our environment is that we need to encourage openness and honesty to try and go beyond the superficial conversations and develop something deeper One of my questionnaire results um, said that that hardly anyone who filled in my questionnaire talks about giving with anybody other than their spouse. Hardly anyone. Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to get you to turn around and speak to the person next to you and share your deepest thoughts and all this kind of stuff. But um, here are um, five financial queries. I wondered if we could use them This week to chat to your closest friends, maybe in a small group if you had a a particularly good, strong relationship there. To what extent does your current expenditure fit with your aspirations for your priorities and spending? Of the places you give, to which do you feel most and least connected? To what extent do you feel you are giving generously? Are there any areas of your financial life in which you feel you are clinging too tightly to your material possessions or wealth? And finally, how else could you be open to God at work in your financial life? So then as we end and I hand over to Verity and, and Roe to talk to us about some of the specifics around our finances, how should we give? What does it mean practically for us? The sad conclusion after a load of study is that I don't think there is a simple answer. I don't think there is a magic number, a percentage I can give you. This is what you should give if you were not over X. You should give Y, anything like that. I don't think it's as simple as that. I wonder if the answer is to look at our income and say, what is my first priority for this? Do I view this as my money? Do I view it as God's money? What are my answers to these five financial queries? Am I holding on with a tight, closed fist, or with an open hand? What legacy do I want to leave with my money? A while ago Steve and I spoke about this line from a poem called The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. The poem ends with these words: Tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Last week we heard of a family in Oasis Academy South Bank, which is the secondary school that we run, who were struggling. Um a single man with five kids had been living in a hostel. And they'd just been given a flat, but it was an unfurnished flat. And so Carly, who's the principal at Oasis Academy South Bank, spoke to Steve and to the church team here and and asked us if there was anything that we could do. She didn't know what that might be. She just said, does anybody have some crockery that they don't need or something like that? And so and we asked, what is it that they need? And she said... cutlery crockery a washing machine if there's any chance of that and maybe some rugs because they have hard floors and no carpets and no rugs or anything and there's five boys and these boys are running around and they're already getting complaints from the people underneath them is there anything that you can do and so we put a note in the notice sheet and at the end we put a box there we've got all the cutlery that they will need We've got all the crockery that they need. We had donations of 200 pounds in cash for anything else they need. We were offered four washing machines. And we were offered no rugs. But somebody offered to pay to carpet the entire flat for them. See, this is where it gets interesting, isn't it? I talked last week about, I wrote this dissertation because I wanted it to be practical, to be tangible, to change lives. We looked at this quote from a commentary that I read on 2 Corinthians, which said that Paul was looking for the tangible proof of their love for the less fortunate holy ones. If anything is an example of that. It's the way that this congregation stepped up last Sunday to help a family that most of you, probably all of you, have never known or might never know. The tangible proof. Proof you can feel. Proof you can touch. Like cutlery. Like crockery. Like a washing machine. Like a roller carpet big enough to fill a flat. I'm going to end with the same quote that I ended with last week. It says this. It says, learning not just to give, but to give well can require a lifetime of practice. But learning this art can transform lives and bind communities together. No simple answers, unfortunately, at the end of two talks. No mechanical 10%. But let's give generously. Let's give so that we create equality. Let's give so that we bring justice. And let's give so that we transform lives and bind communities together.